We have parents who fear taking away the device because it will socially isolate their child. And so they will not remove the greatest cause of social isolation for fear of them being isolated. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. He's got no clue. I just burnt down his house, man. Hey, it's Mikey from the Goonies. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have author and expert on attention and focus, Kurt Steinhorst, as he shares how smartphones aren't always bad for attention, how to handle distraction as a parent, and how technology can actually help with focus. Last week, we had Dr. Natalie Stavis share how long-distance running transformed her ADHD, and this week's guest, Kurt Steinhorst, who himself was diagnosed with ADD, helps us find our focus in the plethora of distractions in today's world. With technology always at our fingertips begging for our attention, I asked Kurt, how do we define distraction in the modern day? It's interesting because I never have to convince anyone that distraction's a problem. The challenge here is that often the way that we think about the solutions for it are more evidence of our distraction than they are helping us with distraction. And, and so distraction is not when we're on our phone. Uh, it depends on what we're doing on our phone, whether that's distracting or exactly where we're supposed to be. At its core, distraction is confusion about what matters. That with everything coming at us, we simply don't know what deserves our, our attention at any given moment. And this isn't something we've had to deal with maybe as much. I know you're, you've talked about how different it is than just, you know, 25, 25 years ago or something. Yeah. If we think about the role that technology plays in our lives, it's easy in today's world to just assume, oh, technology's everywhere, all oh, these phones. But really, technology changes how we behave. It literally changes what we pay attention to, what we do with our time, um, how we interact with the people that we're around, with the places that we are or the places we're escaping. And, and because of that, we've experienced such a rapid amount of change, such exponential change, that it gets really tough to assess um, how we're supposed to act. What does it mean to be successful? What does it look like to thrive in an environment of constant connectivity and endless access to all sorts of things that our brain says are interesting and worth our attention? So, for example, like I, I know a guy and he and his wife just, you know, we'll say four years apart in, in age. And that's a, a huge gap even within it doesn't seem like it's that big, but it is. And how do you have conversations with someone about this topic? Well, you've actually hit the nail on the head in terms of the approach we have to take, because over and over again, what we're seeing is that people think the solution to distraction and our relationship with technology is this individual life hacking, uh, get more done, productivity, uh, listen to the right podcast approach. And the truth is that uh, focus and attention has never been an individual endeavor. Uh, productivity is not personal. You can be the most focused person in the world. And if you're surrounded by people yelling at you, you can't get work done. And so that does require us to, instead of thinking about time management uh, alone, to instead start with the conversations that have to be had. And they're uncomfortable. We don't have them. We talk about everything, but we don't talk about what are the parameters that we want to use to guide um, the way we interact with one another. So do you ever have this conversation with, with your wife? 
if I <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, she won't listen to this yeah. podcast. Nobody does. Yeah, no, it, it's, 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 it's funny. Um, we have an annual conversation around these issues and then we have an ongoing conversation. The, the fact is feeling guilty about getting on your phone is missing the fact that the phone is awesome. I have not eaten at a bad restaurant in five years and I'm in cities that I've never been in because I can see what restaurants are good. Like there's really great things about the phone. And, and so what we do, we do a couple things. Uh, number one, from the time I get home to the time we put the kids to bed, I, uh, I put my phone on a charger. And I have an Apple Watch. We'd be like, that's distracting. No, what the Apple Watch does for me is it allows me to see that nothing is an emergency that's coming in. So I know that I don't have to go back and check it because I'm not missing something. But, but I am also not being interrupted fully and fully engaging at the larger device. So that's one of the practices we do. And then uh, we have this other one where if we're going to be on our phone, we externally explain what we're doing on our device. And this seems really um, odd, maybe. Um, but what it does is, one, it holds us accountable. Like, I'm doing something on my phone. And two, it helps create a shared experience. Like, I'm responding to your mom about these things. I'm looking for, um, you know, where we're going to eat on our date. I am changing my fantasy football roster. Whatever it is, but by expressing it, now it doesn't feel like it's a competition with whatever else we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, so it's sometimes the mystery of what's happening is what gets you, like what's important yeah. and what's not. That's right. And if we, if we understand that attention at its core is the selection process for what matters to us, it's literally we pay attention to what matters, then we recognize that why it is so painful and so frustrating when someone doesn't give us their attention. They're saying something else matters more. And so when we don't know what that thing is, the one variable we do know is that it's not being given to us. And that is really hard. So by exposing the alternative, like, hey, I'm doing this thing, it actually changes the equation and makes people realize that um, it's not at their expense. Do you feel people like should set, like have set times where this is my social media time and this is my work time and this, or do you feel that it's okay to have everything kind of merge or mesh all together? In a perfect world, uh, we would live within the boundaries of the space we occupy. Like to, to thrive in a world of constant connectivity is to try to align the activity with the place I'm in and the people I'm with. So we want to have alignment there. Where, where we get distraction is where the space says we're supposed to be doing something. The activity says something different. So I'm in one place, I'm doing something else, and I'm not with the people I'm with. And so we want to create barriers. Having intentional social media time is great. The reality is we also have to understand that uh, there's reasons we go to social media. And some of it is we're tired. We, there's a lot of great ideas that work in the future, but don't work in the present. So where we try to go towards is saying, uh, at the very least, we need to set high boundaries for specific periods of time where nothing can get in, because that's the moments that we actually can assess what deserves our attention. So the rest of the day, make decisions about how much time you're going to be on social media, but at least reserve 40 minutes to jump into what we call a vault so that you can be fully unavailable. So give me, so I love this concept of the vault. Did you call it like a sprint vault or what, or, or is that a, I didn't know which was the noun, which the verb, what explained that concept? Yeah. So the core concept is a vault and a vault is a place and a time that we go to as a ritual to first pause, second prioritize, and then third Amen and do whatever it is that's most difficult for us. 
like the hard work. The vault sprints were a concept, a client of ours we collaborated to create for their executive team. And the whole executive team was doing what so many people do today, spending their whole day responding to emails. We spend about uh, 6.1 hours on email between personal and professional every day, which is great if responsiveness is the only obligation we have but it eliminates and uh, reduces the value of anything else that we're supposed to be doing. So they created vault sprints, which is 45 minutes. You have a sprint. You don't go to the bathroom. You don't need coffee. You don't respond to the phone. You don't text your spouse. And then a 15-minute break. And there were these sprints. So depending on the day of the week, it was between one and three sprints a day. And then the rest of the day, dive into the ocean of email inboxes, of Slack, of connectivity. What was the difference that they had? It was fascinating because... The, you know, the short and simple is productivity skyrocketed. Uh, they started driving forward. This was a, a franchise business that saw uh, rapid gains in terms of the number of franchises and the profitability. Um, but the piece that we, we probably undervalued when we started this consulting project was the levels of engagement and happiness among the leadership team and even those that they reported to. Uh, nobody does well in an environment of constantly feeling like there's more things than they can handle at a given moment. And when we slow it down, we don't actually progress less. We progress further because the volume ensures we can't differentiate what's important. So when we put a pause on it, all of a sudden, the things that we're actually focusing on are the things that actually matter. Now, the people stick with it? Or did, and did you have anybody who wouldn't do it? What we have found over and over again is there's this, there's this learning curve. Like people don't want to do it on the front end. And so it's hard. So you have to set some pretty clear roles. Like this, we're going to do, we're going to make it a team effort. We're all going to do it. And then after about a month, it really becomes part of a ritual that's even enjoyed and appreciated. Because who doesn't want to not have to check their inbox? <laughs> like who, who's like, you know what? The one thing you can't take from me is uh, diving into 215 emails. That's what I want to do. So it's actually uh, um, something that's enjoyed. Now, you also have this interesting concept with, with space. So not so much like the, you know, like a Star Wars type of thing. But what, what is your concept of space and the importance that plays in all of this? In today's world, it's interesting because space in some sense has never mattered less. We can be on a beach working, a family event working, at work not working. But what we actually understand is that this largest neural connection between short-term and long-term memory in our brain is space. Uh, where we are has an essential role in what we pay attention to. And, and so we, we already know this, right? We spend money to go to a movie because we're going to a place that says this is what matters. Or we go to gyms. That's a great example. Think about it. Uh, there's nothing that we do at a gym that we can't do anywhere else for free. Uh, if you want cardio, you can run. If you want to lift weights, um, you know, borrow my kids, whatever. Like there's lots of options here. But we spend money because we want to go somewhere that says this is what I am to do here. And, and so a lot of the work we, we want to encourage people around space is to rethink um, how is the location that I'm in supporting or hindering the outcome I'm seeking. So often we think about an office um, where we work is just the activity. I guess I need a desk. I need a chair. I got to have a computer. I need to have the cube. Or we're going to do open. But it's a cost thing. But if we actually can reimagine the space to actually facilitate. So there's times we need collaboration, but there's times we need to be fully unavailable. And what we never need is to feel like we're locked in a tiny little cubicle. And so there are ways that we can actually approach our space so that it's easier to get work done. It's easier to focus rather than harder. 
in, in my own life with, with figuring out when I'm most productive and when I'm most not, it seems like it's different for every type of person. How do people discover where they are most productive or where they're least distracted? Most of the time you can ask them and they'll pretty quickly know. Yeah. Why do people work better in a coffee shop than in their office? Only 7% of people do their best work in an office. Okay, well, number one, uh, in an office, your, your employees, your colleagues, your, your boss, uh, their number one goal is to make sure you don't get your job done. <laughs> so this is a problem. Uh, but even more, let's go e even further. It, it, there's actually a cultural challenge. Like if you walk by someone in your office, it is rude not to say hi. It's rude not to be kind, right? And by the way, the easier they have access to you, at whatever moment they're avoiding what they're supposed to be doing, your availability plays a critical role in who they're going to go after. So that's number one. We go to a Starbucks and we have two things happening. One, none of the people there are likely to approach us. So we don't know them. But there's even, there's this other hidden aspect of a Starbucks or a coffee shop or a library at a university. Um, everyone is, or there's always a large number of people who are also on their computer, who are also working. And our attention is actually directed by other people. So we see what others are paying attention to and we do the same thing. And so when we're in a space that other people are doing the same thing, but also don't have the likelihood of wanting to interrupt us, then we're more likely to get work done. And so um, when it comes to like time of day, generally speaking, people, uh, you know, focus is a depreciating asset, but that assumes you got a good night's sleep, right? And every activity that you do, every time you try to focus, it makes it a little harder the next time. But whether that's early in the morning or a little bit later, I, I think the key is to be aware. And rather than to try to deny and feel guilty, which guilt is a great, great motivator, um, it usually motivates us straight to a funny cat video on YouTube. Um, we can instead say, okay, I'm going to preserve this time. I'm going to close my door at for this period, and I'm going to set up my space. I'm going to turn off the computer, or I'm going to uh, turn off access to the phone. I'm going to put it somewhere else. We want to remove from our visual line of sight the things that will distract us, and it's during this time I'm going to do the stuff that I can't do at other times of the, of the day. What advice would you have for parents when it comes to this? Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding. Uh, as, as a parent of two and, and another coming soon, this is perhaps the place that I care the most and want to lead by saying it's extremely complex. And any, any standard that reminds us that all of us are going to fail is a really great way for none of us to actually make progress. These devices are powerful and when our kids are at ages where the ex executive function of their brain, the frontal region of their brain is not developed, asking them to have um, power over it is an impossibility. I, I think one of the most ironic things happening today in culture is we have parents who fear taking away the device because it will socially isolate their child. And so they will not remove the greatest cause of social isolation in history for children for fear of them being isolated. Um, we go to schools and there's this push to get them, a, you know, they're, they're going to have to use technology their whole life. So they're going to, we just, we lost the battle and therefore the phone is going to be used. The phone, we're going to put them on screens all day long because that's their future. And yet you talk to companies and young people coming up into the workforce, what skills are they lacking? None of them are worried about the technology. The technology is so simple. You don't have to learn it. You don't have to spend time on it. It works. They're losing the skills. They don't have the skills that are lost to technology. 
So we have to create boundaries, but here's the last thing I'd say. Telling a kid they have to get off their phone so they can, you know, inter interact with the family while we all watch TV together is <laughs> an absurd idea. Like, how dare them? If we want to remove the device, we want to replace it with something better. And that requires work. But in the end, families thrive when they interact in real life. So talk to me about what attention is and how that works with the brain. When it comes to the brain, there's, there's two major systems of attention, and they can be largely divided, although it is far more complex than this, into the left and right hemisphere. Once you understand this, it actually is really helpful because so much of the way that we, we tend to try to solve distraction is through what we call focus, right? The goal of um, today's workforce, what I need is to get more done faster. That means efficiency and that means focus. And in fact, when people ask for consulting or, or ask me to speak, often it is we got to get our people more focused. Here's the problem. Focus is the left hemisphere of attention. And, and what focus does, it's very specific in its utility. Focus is a type that allows us to zoom in on particular objects or particular space. And when we zoom in, everything else disappears. If you've ever seen that video of the the basketball team throwing the ball and they say, watch the ball. And then the gorilla comes through and no one sees it because they're zoomed in. They're focused on the ball. The problem with making focus an efficiency thing is that focus isn't designed for efficiency. Uh, focus is designed for mastery. So we zoom in on something and the more we zoom in on it, the more fascinated we get with it, the more time we spend it on it, the more we become better. And then we eventually become experts. This is how we learn basically any task or any activity or any skill. Like you learn to walk, well, you, it takes all your focus and then eventually it disappears because you focused on it. So focus is really powerful. And for work that requires us to do something that is involving precision, strategy, it's very important for everything else to disappear. But over the course of our day, that's just not the way we're going to spend it. And, and the reason is because the base system of attention, the one that makes sure we survive, is the right hemisphere, and that is constantly searching for new and interesting things. We're curious. We call it distracted, but our brain is wired for curiosity. Find new stuff, see if it matters, and zoom in on it if it does. So if we think that we can somehow enslave our attention, go work in a tiny white room, stare at a screen, and then we wonder why we find ourselves wanting to go elsewhere, when we're bored, we're going to escape. And that's because our survival depends on it. Now, are certain people just more prone to one way or another, or can people actually fix it and get better technology or whatever regardless? Yes and yes. <laughs> the, the, the perfect dichotomy here is that I was diagnosed as a kid with ADD, which means that I like shiny new stuff more than other people. And it means it takes more for me to be fascinated and therefore focus. My brother-in-law is a rocket scientist. So when people say it's not rocket science, he's like, yes, it is. Um, <laughs> he works for Virgin or Orbit as a um, PhD physics and mechanical engineering. And he brings on vacations 500-page physics books. He can spend six hours just reading. Focus has never been a problem for him. He has never had, he, he learned the piano by spending, you know, hours from the time he was young. So his brain literally is more comfortable with the part of the part of his brain is more comfortable zooming in and focusing. I would have been wonderful as a hunter, uh, as an explorer, 
uh, as a computer, at a, staring at a computer was not good for me. Now, that's part one. Part two is that every one of our brains are constantly changing. And the idea that we're somehow locked into how our brain works is just not aligned with what we actually see in neuroscience. We are either getting more and more in need of interruption and distraction, the more we interrupt ourselves, or the more we are interrupted, the more we interrupt ourselves, or we're getting better at being able to control that. So prayer, meditation, these have quantifiable results in terms of improving our ability to focus. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. We will be off next week for Christmas and so that our producer, Eric, can recover from his overdose of eating Sister Schubert rolls. You'll have to Google those to figure out what they are. But anyway, we wish you and your family a great Christmas and we'll see you back in the next year. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric. Eric Woody, your creative director and part-time leprechaun, was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of D. & Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the 